Uh, it's also a crazy time for the Treadway House. We um, moved this last week. It's why we weren't here on Sunday. Uh, I was an absolute disheveled uh, wreck, unwashed, um, unkept, uh, just a nightmare. We decided to move on our own. Um, the problem is we haven't moved in 15 years, so I forgot the trauma from 15 years ago and decided, oh yeah, it's no big deal to move 25 years worth of things after raising uh, four kids in a house. Um, but uh, it was an absolute nightmare. Uh, we built this house 15 years ago, and uh, we raised our four kids there. And uh, it was very emotional, actually, to move. Um, you know, I tried to be the tough guy through it. My wife was a mess. If you go out there to get your Christmas dessert tickets and she's sobbing, it's not you. It's me. It's, it's me. Um, but it's tough, you know. We raised our kids in that house. Everything's got a memory there. And it's a ton of work, so you're exhausted physically and you're exhausted emotionally. Um, we moved everything we own into a three-car garage in the new house, and it's just stacked. And I do have to tell you, everything we own, I don't think, is worth a total of $85. <laughs> Yet we moved every bit of it. I, don't, I mean, everything is kind of worthless, but especially after raising four kids, we don't have any nice things. <laughs> I mean, but we've got a lot of just stuff, and of course, everything's got a memory. And, and I would show, Jenny, do we really need this... Uh, watercolor penguin from our son's second grade. And what's the answer? Of course, we need it all. We just need it all, right? Then we have a lot of things we're just carrying around because we've carried them around for 25 years. I'll give you one example. I could go on for an hour. One example is a little hutch thing. It's about that wide, maybe that tall. And it's to put teapots or something like that on. It's a piece of junk. I mean, it's the worst made furniture would be an overstatement. Just particle board wrapped in paper that looks like wood, that kind of thing, and just, it's terrible. Yet we move it, we've moved it 11 times before we built this last house, we moved 10 times just buying and building and all that stuff. And we moved it every single time. And I, every single time, I asked Jenny, are we still gonna move this thing? And what's her answer? Yes, why? It was her grandmother's. We will never use it, it's a, you couldn't give it away. You couldn't pay somebody to, to take, but we're moving it and moving it and moving it. We're downsizing. We uh, went from a five bedroom to a three bedroom. We've got uh, three kids now in college and it was just, it was just time. And of course, uh, we moved into the new house uh, during Thanksgiving when everybody who's in college comes home. So we now have a three bedroom house. There are at least seven people in our house. I truly don't know the exact number, but it's our kids are back and there's strangers also living in our place and I just uh, lost count. So our house is absolutely full. We have boxes to the ceiling. We have mattresses laid out everywhere in every corner where human beings sleep, some of which I know. <laughs> now this move marks the end of uh, quite a year for us. We've had, had quite a year. It began a year ago at the Route 91 shooting in Las Vegas. Our daughter was there. She was in the middle of the crossfire there. Her boyfriend at the time stepped up and protected her and did the exact right thing. Um, but that's how our, our year began. Very traumatic for for April, our oldest, and her boyfriend, now fiance. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was just, it was just emotionally traumatizing, not just for our family, but of course the thousands that were there, the dozens of people who were there from Rancho uh, Community Church, very traumatic. Our twin boys also graduated high school this year. These are you know, my buddies and they left the house. That was also very emotional. Um, we had a big project going on kind of behind the scenes here at the church and school that took about a third of my life and took no fewer than five years off my lifespan. That was finished this last year, so that was a big deal. Uh, my oldest daughter got engaged, and so we're planning a wedding for this summer. Uh, the week of our move, um, 
Uh, Tyler, uh, one of our twins, got in a pretty serious car wreck, cars totaled, he's fine, just sore. But that was in the middle of our move. Uh, in the middle of the move, our buyer's uh, house in Calabasas, uh, they were evacuated and that house nearly burned down, so they were displaced and we thought, okay, are they gonna move to the new house early with us? Are we gonna live together with our new buyers? How awkward would that be? We offered, but we offered with a, we don't really want to do this, but we really need to do this. If you need a place to stay, you know, come with us. Um, and then, of course, we moved out of the house that we raised our kids in. So a lot of different experiences, a lot of just physical exhaustion, a lot of emotional exhaustion. And in that, Jenny and I have had a lot of good conversations, very meaningful conversations about our life and about the change and about just the nature of seasons of life changing and, um, and where we're heading as a family and in ministry. And so it was very meaningful. As difficult as it was at times, change often seems to create deeper meaning but sometimes change can be very painful. In fact, you know, we can talk about the year we've had, but you have the shooting in Thousand Oaks followed by the fires that have taken um, maybe upwards of 100 or more lives. It's scary the number of people still missing. It is very scary. People losing their homes, whole cities being burned down. You know, as, as interesting of a year as, as we've had, we are very, very thankful to have what we have. The creed we are studying uh, this fall, found in Philippians chapter two, is the creed of the first church that details how Jesus changed during his time here on earth. How Jesus morphed, the experiences that he experienced, the change that he kept experiencing in order to love and to serve us and to love and to serve the world. Now we all have our stories of change. We all have our stories of unique experiences. We all have our stories of success and struggle. But when we look at the creed of the first church found in Philippians 2, we see the summary of how Jesus first declined into humility and then raised to exaltation. So let's all stand together and let's recite this creed. And as we do, think of how Jesus changed and morphed in order to serve us and to serve the world. Read it with me. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. That is the creed. That's the first creed of the first church. This is the doctrinal foundation of our faith. And it's an upside-down creed, right? This is not someone going from, from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. It's, in fact, the opposite. Jesus Christ, the very nature of God, humbling himself, increasingly humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. In fact, the creed itself begins with the highest of highs that Jesus Christ was by very nature God. And then at the end of the first part of the creed, look how low he stoops in order to fully serve us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So follow through the first half of this creed, the journey, the changing journey of Jesus. He began by very nature of God. Then he let go or emptied himself of his divine privilege. He emptied himself of all the rights of deity. He took the form of a servant, took the form of a man, humbled himself, became obedient, obedient even to death and even death on a cross. 
The first line, by very nature God, the last line of the first section, death on a cross. That's quite a, a chasm. That is an incredible journey of change that Jesus went through in order to serve us. So we're gonna ask two questions today as we study this verse eight. Why did Jesus die? And why did Jesus have to die? Those are two questions we'll address today. Let's begin with the first. Why did Jesus die? There's really two, two reasons, and it's very clear if you just read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read those Gospels as historical narrative and asked yourself the question, why did Jesus die? It would be very easy to answer. Jesus died because he became an enemy of the religious elite. Jesus died because he became an enemy of the religious elite. Now, the religious elite at the time, 2,000 years ago, were also the governing authorities of the people. So the religious elite would be similar to our city council and police, right? The governing authority. The religious leader, 2,000 years ago, the religious leaders also governed the affairs of all of society. They had the authority. And Jesus challenged their authority. He challenged the religious leaders every step of his ministry. He challenged the religious corruption. He challenged religious self-righteousness. He challenged religious hypocrisy. He challenged religious privilege. He challenged religious authority. In fact, in John eight forty four, Jesus is shouting at the religious leaders and he says, you are liars and your father is a liar, the devil himself. You wanna get a religious leader riled up? Say that they are liars and their, liar, and their lies come from the devil himself. Jesus was not messing around. He considered the religious leaders the enemy of the people, so to speak. He considered them public enemy number one, and he had to tear down their religious authority. They were using their religion, they were using the name of God to oppress people, to keep people in poverty, to oppress the sick, to reject the, the lonely, to reject the sinner. And Jesus saw all the hurt that they were causing, and he stepped in, and he confronted the religious oppressors. And, and I'm telling you, if you want some fun, read Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, Jesus is pouring out seven woes upon the religious leaders, and he is screaming at them in their temple, in the religious temple. He's screaming at them and, and confronting them for every bit of their corruption and hypocrisy and greed in front of 100,000 people at least. Needless to say, they weren't happy about it. They had a meeting. The chief priests and the Pharisees, and this is earlier in Christ's ministry, but this just goes to show you how his his confrontation of religious leaders defined his whole ministry. The chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. These are the religious leaders. Just think robes and pointy hats. What are we accomplishing? What are we doing, guys? This is the question. What are we doing? They asked, here's this man performing many signs, and Jesus is performing all kinds of miracles, and his teaching is drawing massive crowds, right? Um, they asked this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and get this, take away both our temple, not the temple of God, our temple, and our nation. Not God's nation, our nation. Do you see the hubris here? Do you see the absolute arrogance? Do you see them dripping with power, self-interest and power? This is our temple and our nation and if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing, Rome, who has invaded us, is gonna take away what is ours? Jesus has to be stopped. So one of them stands up and says this, don't you realize that it's better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
Jesus wasn't messing around and confronting these religious leaders, and the religious leaders weren't messing around confronting Jesus. And all of this came to a head during the Passover week. During the Passover week. And during that Passover week is when the religious leaders and Jesus, during a very tense time, began to, to come to a crescendo. Jesus died because he took on the religious elite. There's a subplot here. Jesus also died because the religious elite manipulated the political elite. Here's the deal the religious elite made with the devil, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire comes in and, and conquers the Jewish people who are led by the religious leaders. The, the entire goal of the Roman Empire is to absorb um, kingdoms, to absorb nations, to absorb people groups, hold the territory, and keep the peace. They don't want territories that they conquered to, to have periods of unrest. So they make deals with local authorities. The Romans made deal with the religious leaders of Israel. Keep your people under control and we will keep you in power. That was the deal. And so here comes Jesus and the religious leaders despise Jesus. They're taking their people. Jesus is confronting their corrupt uh, uh, authority, right? They want Jesus executed. They want him executed. But the religious elite did not have the unilateral right to execute Jesus. So here Jesus comes in during the Passover week. The Passover week is celebrating how God set the Jews free from slavery. Now they're enslaved again by Rome. So the Passover week was a very tense time for the Jews in Rome. Because as they're celebrating freedom from slavery, some of the zealots among the Jews are rising up and saying, now we got to take on Rome. So Rome dispatches a bunch of um, soldiers to Jerusalem every Passover. So the place is already tense. The religious leaders use that tension to form a conspiracy against Jesus. The Jewish leaders tell the Roman authorities, there's a guy in the city claiming to be a king. Keep in mind, Jesus talks about a kingdom. If he talks about a kingdom, by implication, he's a king. So they tattle on Jesus to the Roman authorities. Jesus is claiming to be a king. Then they spread rumors among the Jewish people that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he is claiming to be God and is blaspheming God. So they create kind of a mob. Then they pay off Judas, a disciple of Jesus, to lie about Jesus and betray him on that Thursday night of the Passover week. Jesus is then arrested by the temple guards, the religious guards on Thursday night, and is ping-ponged back and forth from religious courts to Roman courts, back and forth all Thursday night, six trials. At the very end, Jesus is standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate is sick and tired of the dissension, sick and tired of the tension. His only job in Jerusalem is to keep the peace. Here's how that encounter goes in John 18. Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him a question. It's a simple question. It's a yes or no question. Are you king of the Jews? Simple question. Yes or no? Jesus answers right in the middle. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, that's an interesting answer. If Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, he's crucified. If he says, no, I'm not a king, he's set free. Pilate wanted him set free. Jesus walks a line right in the middle and he says, I have a kingdom, so I'm a king, but it's not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus says, I do have a kingdom. 
but it's not of this world. It's not about swords and armies. So Rome, there's nothing to worry about. Yes, I'm a king of a whole new kingdom, but you have nothing to worry about. What did Pilate hear? And this is understandable. You're a king then. And that was it. That's all Pilate needed. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but as soon as Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he had to take that as an insurrection. And Jesus, in his mind, had to die. Now, in the crucifixion of Christ, it is very brutally and graphically detailed, particularly in the Gospel of, of Matthew uh, and John. I'm, I'm going to spare you a lot of the, the more graphic elements of this, but I'll, I'll give you just a summary of Jesus' crucifixion. He was first flogged, whipped, and he was whipped with what's called a cat of nine tails. It's a, it's a handle with nine leather straps, and at the end of it, every strap is a rock or a piece of glass. And so the rock or glass enters the skin, and when it's pulled, it shreds the skin. And so his back would have been literally ripped to shreds. And a lot of times, those rocks and pieces of glass embed in the front and are pulled back. Many people die just by flogging alone. A crown of thorns was put on his head to mock him for saying he was a king. His beard was ripped out of his face. He was spit upon. He was beaten with sticks to the point where he was unrecognizable. He carried his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem in humiliation. When he got to the place of Golgotha, a place called the skull that sits high above Jerusalem, his wrists were then nailed to the crossbeam, his ankles nailed to the post beam, and he was lifted high for the whole city of Jerusalem to see, stripped naked at 9 a.m., bloodied beyond recognition on the Friday morning of Passover week. It would normally take somebody one to three days to die of crucifixion. In order to inhale, you have to push on the nails of your feet. In order to exhale, you had to hang on the nails in your wrist. And a strong person could do that for up to three days. But Jesus was beaten and tortured so badly before his crucifixion, he passed away on the sixth hour at 3 p.m. on that Friday afternoon. I want to read the first half of this creed again and just notice how Jesus goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Walter Hansen says this about the first half of this creed. The first half of the creed ends with a dramatic phrase, even death on a cross. And that word death would be like the crescendo of a drum roll, the reverberation of the word death bringing the first half of this creed to a deafening silence before a cross. Death on a cross was not a hero's death. It was not a noble death. It was a shameful death, a disgraceful death. The cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty. The cross exhibited the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds. Roman law reserved the cross for the worst criminal and the most violent insurrectionist, and only those who were slaves or foreigners. The historian Cicero called death on a cross a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The cross is the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon the lowest of slaves. 
The first three stanzas of this creed take us down, down, down to the deepest, darkest hell hole in human history to see the horrific torture, unspeakable abuse, and bloody execution of a slave on a cross. That is Jesus, the full nature of God. Now, as we settle with the crucifixion, there's a couple of things to note. One of them is that Jesus was not crucified by surprise. He was not ambushed. He chose that road of crucifixion. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus, by very nature of God, had authority over his own life. So he willingly gave his life. Jesus knew that when he walked into Jerusalem, he was going into danger. In the book of Luke, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. But the nature of Jesus was to unrelentingly protect the oppressed and unrelentingly go after the oppressors. That's the life and ministry of Jesus. He was a radical. He was a zealot. He was zealously protecting the oppressed and zealously tearing down the oppressors. And he knew in order to do that, he had to give every single measure of effort to see to it that that happens, including his own life. He was relentless. He would relentingly confront power at every turn, relentingly loving the least, the last, the lost, the rejected, the sick, the sinner, everyone. Jesus was relentless in his radical notion that God loves everyone. Jesus was relenting in subverting and undermining corrupt power. Jesus was relentless in establishing a new counterculture, a new community, a new kingdom where love would be the only law. And he dedicated his life to that cause. And he gave his life for that cause. That's why Jesus died. Now, why did Jesus have to die? That's a different question. Why did Jesus have to die? 1 Peter 3.18 says this very clearly and very very succinctly. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to bring the world to God. He had to die to bring you to God. He had to die to bring me to God. That's why Jesus had to die. If he did not die, none of us would have access to God. None of us would receive this, this love and forgiveness from God, none of us would be able to enjoy eternal life with God if it wasn't for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain why. The world on its own is broken. The world on its own chooses power and prosperity and prominence over love. This world tends to be very selfish. This ter- world tends to be very unkind This world is full of loss and pain and abuse and injustice and loneliness. It can be very cruel and heartless. And religion only makes things worse. Religion uses the name of God to manipulate people, to keep people in line, and to keep people down. That's typical of religion. This world, in a word, is a world of sin. Now, this word sin is a religious word. It's rarely used outside of of church. But it's it's really a simple word. It's, an, it's a word of, uh, of archery. Now, some of you um, may have used a, a compound bow here. This is a high-quality compound bow I bought this morning from Walmart for 39 bucks, so don't be jealous. Um, it's a compound bow. Now, 
if you were an archer, and I have uh, used uh, a bow and an arrow a couple of times, and I am horrible, and I'm surprised people with me even survived the, the event. I'm not very good at it, right? It requires a steady hand, and I'm a royal mess. So if you were uh, an archer, you would have a target, and you would either hit or miss that target, right? The word to hit the target is the biblical word of righteousness, hit the target. The word for missing the target is the biblical word sin, hamartia. So the word sin simply means to miss the target. Um, when, when we kind of over-spiritualize the word sin, we come up with all kinds of strange definitions and usages of that word, and we build whole scenarios around the word sin and theologies around sin. It simply means to miss God's target. God has a perfect target, and we, the world, and we personally miss that target. So I want you to imagine God, the Heavenly Father, makes the heavens and the earth good. Heavenly Father makes the heavens and the earth good. He makes mankind, humankind, in his own image, and he gives humankind this, this challenge, this mandate. Uh, fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Bring my order, bring my peaceful order to this world. That's our job as humankind. How are we doing? Not very good. It's getting better over time, but not very good, right? There's still hurt and pain and war and disease and injustice and poverty and all kinds of solvable things that, that we just allow to happen or cause to happen. So this world, in a word, is a world of sin. We're missing God's mark. We're missing God's mark. So here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus into the world, and Jesus is the embodiment of God's perfect target, right? Jesus is, is the walking, living, breathing perfection of God, righteousness, the perfect target. As he lives a life of love and service and sacrifice, and he talks about this whole new perfect kingdom of love that he is ushering into the world. He's the living, breathing, perfect target, the perfect will of God. So just imagine the perfect target of God is out there living in the world as the world is firing all kinds of sin, missing the targets all over the place, right? And here is the, the perfect son of God, the very nature of God, the perfect light and love of God shining in a dark world and the world hates him. He's living a life of love and they hate that. Why? Because Love doesn't get you anywhere, right? Love is about selflessness and kindness and I gotta get somewhere so I'm gonna pursue power and prominence and prosperity for me, right? So we're missing the mark all over the place and here is the perfect light of God shining out in the darkness and the darkness hates it. And so the darkness took every bit of their fury out upon the perfect righteousness of God and all of the sin, the brokenness, all of the misses of the world and all of the sin and brokenness in us, Jesus endured all of it. He took all of it upon himself. And as he takes the failure of the world upon himself, he replaces that with love, selfless love and selfless kindness, unrelentingly moving forward love at the cost of his own life. Now there's a lot of thoughts about why Jesus had to die. There are some, a few, thankfully, who say that Jesus died because the devil won. The devil manipulated the heavens and the earth and, and wanted to crush the Son of God and, and so uh, had him crucified. That's just, that's garbage theology, utterly garbage theology. Hebrews 2 said that the devil was destroyed by the cross. So believe me, the last thing the enemy wanted 
was Jesus to die for the sin, the misses of the world. I also want this to be made clear as well. There's a lot of people who believe that Jesus was crucified because God is full of bloodthirsty, fierce, and vengeful wrath, and his anger has got to be poured out on someone. God is so furious over sin and so bloodthirsty, full of vengeance, that that anger and wrath has got to be poured out on somebody, and it's going to be his own son. I'm not quite sure. God always has abhorred human sacrifice. In very ancient times, during the time of the writing of the Old Testament, there were human sacrifices, and God abhorred it. There's actually a valley that, um, where human sacrifices were performed. It's called the Valley of Gehenna, which we translate as hell. And so just to kind of get the, 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 the idea, the darkest imagery is about the spot where humans were sacrificed. God abhorred human sacrifices. God wasn't even a fan of animal sacrifices. Even though we see in the Old Testament, the Jews performed countless hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices. God was never quite a fan of those either. In fact, Psalm 40, verse six, one of many verses about this, God says, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. This is the psalmist writing. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. The psalmist says, I've been enlightened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. God neither desires nor requires blood sacrifice. And so it doesn't quite fit God's heart against human sacrifice and God's heart to not desire or require blood sacrifice. And it doesn't quite fit the person of Jesus who is the very nature of God and is the full expression of God the Father. It doesn't quite fit that God is just this vengeful, angry, bloodthirsty, wrathful God who just has to have a human bloody sacrifice in order to calm him down. Doesn't quite settle, biblically or logically. So if Jesus didn't die because of some victory of the devil, and if Jesus didn't die because of some bloodthirsty, angry, vengeful God that required a bloody human sacrifice, why did Jesus have to die? 1 John 2, 2 says this. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. I want you to bank these two words in your head. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And not only for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. Jesus was sacrificed. He sacrificed himself. He gave it all in order to atone for the sins of the world. Now, what does atone mean? Uh, another translation could be propitiation. To simply say, it means covering. The selfless, loving sacrifice of Jesus covered the brokenness of the world. Simplest way to put it. Jesus was so loving and so sacrificial. He was the full expression of the love of God, not the full expression of the wrathful, bloody vengeance of God. He was the full expression of the love of God. And his self-sacrificing love covered our failure, covered our sin, covered our misses. And as we'll get into next week, when Jesus rises from the dead, it is the expression to all of heaven and all of earth that love wins over hate. Love wins over evil. Love wins over suffering. Love wins over injustice. Love wins over oppression. It is love that cancels out 
our sin. It is love that atoned for or covered the misses of this world and the misses in our own lives. We see that very clearly in Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The crucifixion is not the image of a vengeful God getting even on his own son, paying for the sins of the world. The cross is the image of the inexpressible love of God that would even give his own son to take the suffering and the sin of the world upon himself and to rise again from the dead so that love would truly win. While the world was still in sin, while the world is missing the mark, Jesus Christ came as the full righteousness of God, the full love of God, to take the world's evil upon himself and replace it with love. When we were still personally in our sin, none of us are perfect, right? There are misses in our own life. Every single day we miss the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of God that covers our own sin. So we know we're forgiven and we know that we are one with God, not because we've attained a certain level of spirituality or we're religious people. That doesn't do any good. We believe Jesus. We follow Jesus. The fullness of God showing unconditional love, taking the suffering and sin of the world upon himself, atoning, covering the failures of the world and covering our own failures with love. So God the Father looks at us not with vengeance, not with wrath, only with the love of Jesus Christ who gave his very life for us. I wanna close our time with a, a story of one of the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. And maybe this could be your own story today. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. This was 3 p.m. on that Friday. The curtain of the temple, and the curtain of the temple was a symbolic barrier between God and man. At the crucifixion of Christ, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember our question, why did Jesus die? He died to bring the whole world to God. When that curtain was torn in two, it's that wonderful expression that there is now no separation between God and man. Jesus paid it all. He suffered the fullness of our brokenness and expressed the fullness of love. And by love, there is no separation between God and man. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, this centurion, this Roman soldier who crucified Jesus said, surely this man was the son of God. The very soldier who crucified Christ came to a moment of faith when he saw how Jesus died. How did Jesus die? He died selflessly. He died lovingly. Even while Jesus was being crucified, the Bible says, as insults were being placed on him, he did not return insults. As violence was being poured on him, he did not return with violence. As he was on the cross, he asked God the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him. As he was on the cross, he took time to bring the one being crucified next to him into the kingdom of heaven. Every single thing Jesus did in life and everything Jesus did in death was selfless and sacrificial to bring forward a new kingdom of love onto this earth. And when the Roman soldier who crucified Jesus saw how selfless Jesus was, he declared, surely this is the Son of God. Now, a church our size, a room this big, as many people as are here, I'm not going to assume that everyone here has come to that moment of faith like the centurion soldier, but I'm gonna ask you today if perhaps today is that day you come to faith in Jesus. 
or today we've had about 35 minutes to, to feel and sense and experience what the crucifixion of Christ might have been like and to get settled in our heart how selfless is the love of God. Not a vengeful, wrathful God, but a loving heavenly Father who desires us to know him, who desires us to know his love, desires for us to know that we are forgiven of everything we've ever done or ever will do because the love of Jesus Christ is victorious over our sin, our misses, the suffering of this world, and even death itself, as we'll see next week. Maybe today could be your moment of faith. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, it is always a little difficult and emotional to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, knowing that he is the innocent, sinless son of our heavenly Father. He is the full nature of deity. There is nothing wrong in his life. He performed no evil. He only sought good. And yet the world's brokenness, the world's misses were poured out upon him with with ferocity, with humiliation, crushing the very son of God. And his crucifixion is the greatest display of love that the world has ever known. Going from the highest of heights, the full nature of God, the lowest of lows, experiencing death on a cross. That is the death to which we are loved by you and loved by your son, Jesus Christ. And by his crucifixion, all enemies are destroyed, including the power of sin and death itself. So God, we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. By the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we know we are loved. We've seen it. We've experienced it. By the crucifixion of Christ, we know that love prevails. By the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection that followed on the third day, there is victory in Christ over all enemies that stand between us and you. You have brought us to yourself by the crucifixion of Christ. You give us nothing but love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, and we receive that at this very moment like the centurion did at the crucifixion of Christ. Thank you for loving us. And because we know we are loved that selflessly and that unconditionally and that sacrificially, I pray that that love would have an impact in our own lives, that everything would change as we learn to love like Jesus. And we would live a new life in the kingdom of heaven, receiving and giving unconditional love. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said, amen.